Hello, everyone. Welcome to Setter Talk. I am your host, Kyle Warren. This podcast is sponsored by Embark Vet and Dr. Tim's Pet Food. Embark Vet is a DNA testing company focused on helping breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts understand and improve the genetic health of their dogs. Embark's DNA test provides a comprehensive assessment of your dog's genetic health, genetic diversity, and physical traits. Embark's DNA testing process was created in partnership with Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine, and test results are accepted by OFA and other leading canine health organizations. To learn more, visit EmbarkVet.com forward slash breeders. And by Dr. Tim's Pet Food, created by veterinarian and accomplished musher Dr. Tim Hunt. Dog food formulas promoting stamina, endurance, and performance through proper nutrition. Dr. Tim's has been fueling champions for many years in the Iditarod, the field trial circuit, and hardworking hunting dogs all across North America. To learn more about the trusted source of nutrition for the canine athlete, visit drtims.com. Thank you for tuning in the Setter Talk today. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Our guest today is no stranger to the podcast, Heather Shaw. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. Yeah, um, uh, I'm really delighted to have you on the show. Um, before we dive into specifics and talk about uh, grouse and setters, um, why don't you give your uh, listeners here a little background on yourself uh, so they get to know you better today. Sure, absolutely. So I am a uh, wildlife biologist, previously the Eastern Great Lakes Wildlife Biologist for the Rough Grouse Society. I reside in the, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just south of Marquette, where um, we've got one Llewellyn Setter and, and two Britneys uh, in, in the dog pack as well. And I uh, spend most of my time chasing grouse and woodcock in the in the Northland up here these days. Cool. Very cool. Um, so you said you have one Llewellyn Setter. Uh, I believe his name is Chip. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, your journey with Chip so far? Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been a fun one. So Chip's quite a character. And anyone that comes across uh, me typically in the field will, will have an opportunity to meet him. He goes everywhere with me. And he's definitely been my my road partner, my road warrior, if you will, will for <laughs> work and personal reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, Chip is about to turn three in May. And it's been, a, it's been a really fun journey with him. I am learning just as much about him, I think, as he is about the world of, of bird hunting. So it's been really fun to see him kind of work through uh, putting the pieces together when it comes to bird contacts and spending time in the wood, general obedience as well. Um, just from the minute I got him as a puppy, I got him from a breeder in Michigan here. Um, he hit the ground running with me on the road. So I had a lot of great exposure in getting him socialized and inter- introducing him to a lot of other uh, people in the Upland community. He is taking over my social media feeds lately, <laughs> and that will probably continue for the rest of his life. So um, it just just we immediately bonded, and he's he's an awesome dog. He's actually my first setter, so I was oh, starting okay. to learn just as much, yeah, just as much about uh, a hunting over a pointing dog. I cut my teeth um, with labs, so I was learning just as much about hunting with him as he was with me. I think, and yeah. he's um, he went through a kind of a terrible two phase, as I call it, and I've, <laughs> I've said that to a lot of my friends too, where. I knew as a intact young male setter, he was going to come potentially through some issues where his range may change and his his drive and different things about his personality might change as well. And when we got through that, we got over the hump. So mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to um, to having more time with him in the woods this fall. 
really working hard once, I mean, we have a ton of snow still in the UP, but once we can finally have an opportunity to get out and, and spend more time uh, working dogs and working on getting snappy with that spring training, I think um, this is really going to be a great year for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds cool. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, all my GSP and Brit buddies uh, um, that I have uh, back home here and, and in the Lake States region probably shake their heads at this a little bit. But it is always interesting <laughs> that all these wildlife biologists in the grouse woods have setters, right? <laughs> so, yeah, coincidence, um, I think not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, something else I wanted to talk to you about um is uh, i know that you are a uh, often a mentor and an advocate of course for women hunters um and over the years uh, i know you participate in in different events and whatnot i feel like while i everybody knows our hunter numbers are going down um and, and maybe it's just social media and the internet that's kind of exposing it and, it and it gives it this image but i feel like our female hunter numbers are going up maybe maybe over our overall numbers are going down and our female numbers are going up i don't know if that's true or not that's just based on what i what i feel i'm seeing but um can you speak to that at all um about just your experiences whether it's just uh, opinion or fact absolutely and i'm really glad that you brought that up so what we've been seeing is is absolutely a, a downward trend in hunter numbers across north america um, but we're seeing on the other aspect of things, a rise in the female demographic in hunting across North America. And that's throughout all facets of hunting, whether it be small game, wing shooting, uh, big game as well. Uh, we, you can kind of break it down. And there's some great data that Fish and Wildlife Service has, has put out. But it's really exciting. It is a time to be alive as a, as a woman um, in, the, in the outdoor world right now. So I've ran into a lot of really amazing experiences over the past few years. And I think the direction that my career has taken me and the Upland community has taken me as well and kind of building um, new bonds and friendships and creating that additional family, if you will, that we all have um, has maybe opened my eyes to this even more. But in Michigan specifically, I can speak to that. Um, I have noticed an amazing increase. And then in, in our Great Lakes states as well that I spend time hunting in with other with other ladies. Um, noticed a really amazing rise in interest, passion, drive, participation uh, for women in the outdoors. So there's yeah. a lot of people in my closer circles that are just just really breaking that ceiling and just doing amazing things in terms of recruiting other people, creating that comfortable environment, creating that bond and that tribe, if you will, of other ladies that have the same passion for the outdoors that you do. Um, so it's it's there. It's not going anywhere. It's if anything, it's going to continue to grow, and it's been um, just really amazing to be a part of and kind of see it evolve, if you will, as yeah. we as yeah, we go no. year to year. No, it's cool, and uh, it's it's funny. You know, I have two daughters myself. They're they're very young right now. One just turned a year, and the other one will be three um, in another uh, less than two months. And uh, all my all my um, UP friends and uh, Wisconsin friends that that have kids uh, that are young. Uh, they all seem to have girls. So uh, uh, hopefully, <laughs> um, hopefully this trend continues and uh, uh, we will uh, uh, rebound our, our numbers uh, to get more, more hunters in general in support of uh, the uplands and whatnot. But it, it is uh, a trend that uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to see. Obviously you're thrilled to see. Um, is there any, any particular, organization or annual events or anything specifically that um uh kind of focuses on um 
women hunter education acquisition um, to, to, to get women more involved or if there are women that are already starting to get involved in hunting that they could um, uh, you know look up these particular resources to, to just you know fuel that fire and and uh, education absolutely there are so many resources out there um, probably too long for me to list but it would be really good to try to amalgamate all of that information together for everyone to have at some point in time, kind of at their fingertips. Um, it varies by state. A lot of state agencies are creating programs for, say, our beginner uh, ladies in the outdoors called Becoming an Outdoors Woman. Those, and the, the name may actually change state to state. Um, I know Michigan DNR, and, and I think, like I said, some of our eastern and western neighbors here have similar programs that introduce you to outdoor sports and wilderness survival and first aid, shooting a bow, fly fishing, how to tie flies. Um, there's a lot of other programs that are also put on though by nonprofit organizations. So Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has been partnering with um, other groups, um, some Western-based groups as well, um, Artemis being one, where there are a ton of resources available and there's a lot of new events going on that are focusing here in Michigan. We were trying to put one on before everything's kind of put on hold, focusing on um, fly fishing, fishing in general, and upland hunting uh, and wing shooting that I was going to be uh, a part of and was excited for that, which is tabled at the moment. Um, other organizations like Turkey Federation and Pheasants Forever have really been doing an amazing job in reaching out to um, the female demographic and have been huge proponents in the R3 movement right now and a catalyst moving forward um, due to the resources that they have and the great membership and support that they have moving forward to put on additional programs too. So um, for anyone that's interested, I mean, they can always absolutely reach out to me or, or other ladies they might know. Um, in the area, and not even ladies for that matter. There's a lot of information out there that everyone's um, capable of moving back and forth to folks that might be interested. But there are several learn to hunt opportunities, several um, pheasant hunt or trucker hunt opportunities where you can get out with a group of ladies. We had one in Michigan, gosh, I guess it's been a year now, which time flies, um, where we just had a group of ladies of all experience levels get together at Cricket Foot Hunting Club and we went on a pheasant hunt. But first we did a European tower hunt. We had Clay's instruction um, in the morning, did a tower hunt. And then those of us that brought dogs did a walk up uh, kind of guided hunt and mentored hunt, if you would, um, afterwards too, which was absolutely amazing. And even for me, I met other ladies that are super passionate about wing shooting um, at that point in time. And those are people that I'm going to continue to want to hunt with and get together with in the outdoors that want to be mentors and want to still be really involved in, in that experience and opportunity for people too. So. The resources are really limited. I wish I could just say there's one, one go-to, but everyone's kind of diving into that, um, that R3 movement that's going on with ladies right now. So there's a lot of opportunities well, there. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's very good. Um, so uh, very cool. Um, so in terms of your experience, uh, you, you had mentioned that uh, uh, your first uh, bird dogs that you, that you hunted over were labs. Um, and you have the setter now. Um, uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, rough grouse as we're both very passionate about uh, that species. But um, what's your, do, do you have a more um, uh, upland species uh, um, experience that, that you'd like to share with us? Or have you pretty much always been uh, a rough grouse girl? <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, no, that's, that's such a good question, too. And I was th actually thinking about this when I was thinking about um, 
other things I, I might want to bring up on this podcast. And it's so neat to hear that people have the opportunity to kind of highlight their stories and where they came from, their background. So I really cut my teeth again as a, as a waterfowler. Um, I previously, when I was still a budding biologist, um, worked as a game bird biologist. So I've always been, my roots really started in game bird ecology and management um, from my career aspect, but hunting and wing shooting got me into that, that passion and want to want to continue to pursue that um, as a career, as a lifelong career too, and make sure that I was still involved in some aspect of game bird management. So yeah, I started out as a diehard waterfowler and I think I kind of evolved um, from there. And not that there's, you know, any, everyone has their own personal evolution, not that there's a different challenge or, you know, different strategies um, or different uh, skill sets. There's, there's a very unique skill set for every game bird species that we pursue. Um, but I elk hunted out west um, quite a bit as well and pursued mule deer and antelope when I worked for Wyoming Game and Fish in North Dakota. Um, I didn't really realize at the time how passionate I was about grouse. I, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't raised as a grouse hunter and as a bird hunter. I was definitely an adult onset hunter. My family mm -hmm. was still and still is um, very passionate about the outdoors and we spent a lot of time backcountry camping and camping in more wilderness settings. And we were always fishing. Uh, but I, I didn't really have the huge passion for hunting instilled until I was probably 19, 1920, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, things kind of evolved. So I went from waterfowling to then pursuing additional game like turkey. And I got really passionate about grouse while I was able to work on management and surveys um, for those birds on a Western landscape. And I think my, my passion for grouse was developing, although I hadn't really realized it. You know, I was pursuing um, at the time blue grouse and spruce grouse in Western landscapes too, before um, coming back to Michigan for grad school. And, you know, now I've been hunt uh, grouse hunting for about 10 years. And that is, I, I'm through and through. My, my, my good friend <laughs> and wingman, Scott Grush, has said this before. He's like, you know, I'm a grouse hunter. He'll go out and try to harvest a few deer every year, and, and we enjoy the opportunities to pursue big game and other species and love to fish. But at the end of the day, he's a grouse hunter, and I can't relate to that <laughs> more than more than anything yeah. right now, I guess. Um, you know, it uh, it's interesting how your different passions or your career or dogs you have or people that you spend time with kind of guide maybe where your interests lie. But that's always going to be my number one passion, and I'll continue to pursue other game species, of course, all season long yeah. and all year long as, as long as we can. But yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my number one <laughs> species, I suppose, grouse and woodcock. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so getting uh, further into grouse, um, uh, we'll break down some some uh, topics uh, uh, within everything here. But um, as far as grouse habitat goes, um, if Heather Shaw's uh, between your your professional knowledge and your experience now, if Heather Shaw's gonna try to uh, uh, pick out her her sweet spot type of cover as you're uh, doing your scouting and whatnot. Uh, what's your preferred type of cover? That is a very good question and one that's that's hard to answer. It changes. You know, I, I guess yeah. my best answer is it varies. It varies on what state I'm in, where I'm at in that state. The cover is going to vary from me hunting at my house or 30 minutes from my house as opposed to south of the bridge in northern Michigan or central Michigan, for that matter. So um, no matter where I'm going, I'm always trying to prepare myself um, a little bit, at least. So you, I, I think living in whatever respective state each of us uplanders live in, we've got a general idea on where cover types and food resource availability and structural 
um, diversity may change. You know, you may see one part of the state is going to be more more northern hardwoods, where you see another um, part of the state that that definitely may come across a kind of a regime shift in the soil moisture shift that changes your forest cover types too. So um, I'm always trying to, if if I'm hunting different areas, I'm trying to focus on um, structural diversity. But at that point in time, early season needs are definitely going to be different for um, birds than late season needs. And weather and food availability and cover type is definitely going to change. You know, throughout, if we're focusing on grouse specifically, uh, throughout their annual cycle, resource availability is definitely key to hone in on. Um, that being said, focusing just on food resources is not going to necessarily, for me anyway, be productive. You want to take a, into consideration um, in early season lately over the past three years, it's been 80 or 90 plus degrees. So if we're getting out, we're getting out early and we're focusing in shady areas that are close to to water and have available uh, moist soil, but also have, um, you know, other resource needs as well as, as food cover. So I, it depends on where I'm at. Um, but I think, you know, some of my some of my favorite covers to hunt are definitely uh, mid to late October where things are a little bit drier. Leaves are starting to come down a little bit. Leaf off is, is starting to begin. We have a little bit more visibility. Um, birds may be a little bit more pressured, but spending time in those young aspen stands and, you know, more of those those upland complexes with pretty thick, maybe um, wrist thick aspen on a, a five to eight, five to ten year age class is definitely something that I really enjoy. And you can still see your dog work and the colors of the fall are usually just gorgeous. And it's um, it's just a great time of year. So that's that's my my favorite time of year to hunt. It's definitely my favorite cover, but I mean, that changes. We try to pursue birds into the winter as well, where we're hunting cedar swamps potentially, or some really thick conifer cover and there's snow on the ground where there's different resources available, but it, um, it all depends. I wish I had a, a clear, concise answer for that, for my, my favorite covers, but I definitely focus on resource needs that change um, all the way from our early season into that last day of the season. So it keeps us yeah, on our well, toes. <clears throat> no, I think, uh, I think you answered it well, you know, um, uh, I mean, I start off, uh, in, in Michigan early season, hunt through the prime there in Northern Wisconsin. And then, uh, uh, I, then I come back here to New York and I hunt through, uh, February. Um, and certainly, yeah, uh, geographically, um, you know, state to state, uh, habitat can vary so much. I mean, obviously, you know, there's some you know, some, some key, um, uh, food sources that are kind of universal, uh, state to state that are, that, that are shared, you know, across state lines, um, and, uh, stem density and all that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, having grew up on New York grouse, uh, uh, from the time I was, you know, 10 years old to, to 30. And then the last, uh, nine plus years, um, uh, adding, um, uh, two plus months of, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin hunting. It's been uh, really interesting. Um, I feel uh, out of Michigan, the, uh, you know, the UP and Northern Wisconsin, um, there's a lot of um, uh, similar ha habitat um, with a few uh, different plant species, tree species that uh, might may or may not be um, across that whole range. And um but what I what I find there more than anything is because it's it's so similar and so much is weather, you know, uh, weather uh, 
greatly dictates uh, where I seem to find myself. Um, I think of I think of uh, uh, so many uh, uh, great uh, longtime grouse hunters that I've hunted with over the years, and um, you know everybody. You know you'll see posts in social media asking like, "What's the best time of day to hunt grouse?" And you know uh, mm -hmm. certainly you know we got the classic you know you know first hunt in the morning, you know mid afternoon mid to dark kind of thing, you know, but. I never forget. Uh, I mean, I hunt all day long out there, and uh, one of one of my uh, great grouse hunter uh, buddies in the past, you know, said they're always somewhere. <laughs> He's like, they're always somewhere. They don't evaporate between ten and two, you know. And um, uh, I've always uh, kind of taken that, and uh, weather has always guided, um, you know, so much of my decision in um, uh, in the the Lake States area with. Uh, overall how consistent it is but you know you mentioned shade you know um uh certainly you know 90 degrees not going to be out there but boy they could really be anywhere um i <laughs> there's no place i i i have not found them in cover type you know um i i do personally like the the near aging out stuff um i i try to avoid those popple whips as much as i can um <laughs> but uh uh yeah i i'll never forget the time that um, it, this was an end of the day hunt and, um, uh, the dog goes on point and I'm looking all over the place, all this and all over the place, trying to find, you know, where this bird might be and nothing, no, 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 no birds are going up and my dog's not moving at all. Um, next thing I know, I turn around, like look into the sun and it's like this, uh, it's like a food plot, just this grassy, grassy like low cut alfalfa field and this is this is uh late october and there's like 15 to 20 roughs like quietly you know going across this field together um <laughs> and and this field was big when i say like field, i mean we're talking like a, a three to five acre field you know and meanwhile i'm looking in the aspen and the spruce and the and the and the hazel and they're <laughs> they're all creeping into the sun you know to get across this field quietly together um, so from that to finding, uh, not finding birds anywhere and then finding them in young maples, uh, when I wasn't finding them anywhere else. So they, they go wherever they have to go to, to, to do what they have to do, I guess. But, um, that's, that's something that, uh, I'm, I'm always so, um, fascinated by, by the species. I, I don't have a lot of experience hunting a lot of, uh, uh, other species myself. I live vicariously through. Uh, my puppy people from all over the country, but um, I just think that they're such an amazing bird uh, because um, they are real survivalists uh, when it comes to their range and where they may or may not be. <laughs> you know, it's that's something that's so fascinating too about our upland community because I'm I'm following the same things and trying to figure out what people are seeing in the spring and what broods are looking like and what you know bird numbers and overall overall health. Uh, might be might be indicating what we're leaning towards coming out of the winter and you know coming out of our our previous fall and no matter what this is north america's most iconic game bird and most studied game bird for over 100 years we've been studying rough grouse and at the end of the day we are still a student to the bird they're always <laughs> humbling which is that humbling experience is, is one of my favorites when it comes to bird hunting because just when we think we may know where they are or where they may you know if a, if we have a a, you know, some great dog work and end up moving a bird a little bit further, thinking we know where they might flush and taking a look at all escape route options possible. 
you really just have a split second to figure it out and, and, and that's it. And then it's gone and that moment's bleeding and it's either successful or it's not too. So I, I think it's yeah. humbling to know that, um, you know, we are, as grouse hunters, everyone is so passionate. It's definitely the most passionate group of hunters, I think, out there who are so in tune to habitat and life cycle needs and uh, management aspects and current um, current status of the bird and the states that they pursue them into. But at the end of the day, you really just have to get out there and boot leather, you know, boot leather will, yeah. will harvest birds and just getting out there and enjoying it. A field is, is going to be the best reward. So. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, you know, when you're listing all, you know, all generally the different cover types and, and, uh, you know, you know, where you find them and, and, and why you would look in all these places. Um, as you're running through all that list, I, uh, uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I've, I've developed a lot of covers over the years and, um, if, uh, they, they end up being productive enough for where I'm going to, uh, go back there, I'll often, give them some romantic name, you know, uh, and whatever dog I happened to hunt with and we had a great hunt, I, I kind of give them that cover and, and we often go back there. Or if I find that it's a very, very challenging cover, you know, uh, everybody loves to make fun of me Not with so how romantic. I label them as the, you know, the expert <laughs> dog covers or the deep covers or the ninja cover, you know, and they're just, uh, they, they deserve all of these names, uh, because of, uh, you know, how many times is the dog going to be on point and you walk by by that spruce tree you know and it rockets out from a branch right above your head the opposite direction like how many times does that have to happen we just don't uh <laughs> we just it's outsmarts us whenever it can for sure that challenge <clears throat> is what keeps us coming back though those ninja oh, covers yeah. that we can't master that we can't maybe we'll never figure out i think yeah. are are the the best ones that we keep coming back to you know there's there's some we've got around here we came across one, well, for example, last year. I don't know if it was the same. I know I know you hunt the UP, too, um, on the mm -hmm. west side. It, we had an overabundance, and just in Michigan alone, of food resource availability. Oh, there was soft mast everywhere. So people yeah. were still, and I know we'll get into, you know, kind of what we think we're seeing on the landscape in terms of bird numbers anecdotally um, in Michigan. Yeah. Some people were having a really hard time getting into birds, but birds weren't concentrated just on one food resource that was available yeah. there, because it was so prolific. So we came yeah, across a yeah. spot that we had found kind of close to our grouse camp that we dubbed Candyland. Mm -hmm. I kept calling it Candyland because <laughs> someone 30 years ago, 40 years ago, planted a ton of crab apple and it's surrounded <clears throat> by a great thermal cover and there's shade and conifer and a nice balsam and aspen component and then aging aspen adjacent to it. Some openings yeah. and fingers. You could just spend all day within not even a, you know, a square mile and um, it. It's still, we, we would approach it in every different angle, depending on wind, depending on weather, different dogs, the way we would work it. And it didn't matter. There was no way that we were going to master these birds. And we saw a bird, the biggest grouse we've ever seen, I think, coming mm -hmm. out of there that we thought was a turkey when it flushed because it was huge, <laughs> but so full of crab apples that it couldn't even fly. It was like sinking yeah. to the ground and like trotting along <laughs> and then trying to lift off again and that was one where like well we're never gonna get a shot at a grouse like that again for the rest of the season but those are the ones that keep you coming back so it's yeah. it's amazing that's why we love it now it is <laughs> it, it, it really is you know the um uh one i had one cover that um it was my eighth year hunting it uh this last year and uh the first seven years and i would and it's a it's a high pressure cover it's it's, you know, one of those highway covers, but it's just, a it's, you know, one of those things like you build it and they will come like the, the habitat is there, you know, and, um, uh, it, there's a, there's a lot of down white cedars in there, uh, surrounded mm -hmm. by everything that they love and need. 
and uh, just some of the most cocky birds that I've ever met. You know, they actually hold real tight, but they had 9 million escape routes where you would just never get a shot. <laughs> No matter how good the dog did, and at best, you know, this was, you know, really this cover and these birds would, would best almost any dog. Um, but it, it right. took me eight years of uh, hunting this cover uh, to bag a bird. And uh, I, I can't tell you, um, uh, you know, I, I try to do right by covers and depending upon, you know, what the inventory seems to be after going mm -hmm. in there one to a few times, you know, taking a bird or two and, and not going back. But this is a cover where, you know, if your truck's not parked there, somebody else's truck is going to be parked there. And the number of birds just never changed because nobody is killing these birds. They just <laughs> smart and had that cover. And uh, yeah, that cover took eight years to get a bird. And, and I mean, I, you know, That's uh, amazing. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of my favorite covers I've ever hunted. You know, it's just amazing um, to, <laughs> To have that experience and you know with friends and dogs um the uh, uh in terms of grouse biology um the life cycle i mean obviously we're covering the whole habitat thing and how food sources change and uh whatnot but um it, could you uh tell us a little bit about um generally speaking and i know this is very weather dependent but um uh you know about the grouse life cycle in terms of um it's 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 mating season it's nesting season like how many eggs how long they incubate i i'm that kind of guy i like to know that stuff uh um and i know i know most of that information and stuff but i'm sure there's i hope there's people out there like me that are listening that would also like to hear that stuff that maybe they don't know so could you enlighten us a bit on that stuff yeah absolutely um so it, it definitely depends on where you're located you know throughout the the continental U.S. anyway, but when we look at um, seasonal needs and, and life cycle needs, when, I mean, right now we've got some drummers that are very active. Sometimes drummers, males will drum year round. Uh, mm -hmm. They may still just be highly protective of their territory too. Um, but when the breeding season occurs, um, incubation will usually commence when that last egg is laid. And it may take 24 to 26 days uh, before those eggs hatched. Um, so from drumming cover and nesting cover, we're still looking at that that very thick structural diversity. So very high stem density, um, still young forest, very young age classes, typically um, zero to dare I say 10. Uh, you know, we're, we're still looking at, you know, wanting that regeneration and whether it's aspen or maple or, you know, a, a, a mix of, of varying hardwoods, too, depending on where you're at and what's available on the landscape. Um, the drumming structure is typically fidelic too for for males, and when we look at in, at least including um, additional contractual requirements for rough cross management for timber sales, we're trying to include at least one drumming structure per acre um, for mm -hmm. commercial or non-commercial timber harvest too. And we typically will leave that. Um, we'll create that drumming structure if, it, if you know, obviously some are already created on the landscape organically too. But if we're going through a timber sale, we want to make sure that we're including that if it's in prime rough grouse range. Um, so we'll look at something four to six uh, feet high and um, eight to 10 inches diameter at breast height. Uh, so that's the width mm -hmm. of the tree at the base too. So they need, the males will typically need that, that still standing, you know, four to four to five to six foot um, 
larger diameter tree adjacent to the drumming log is more of a protective cover and they'll still drum in that that very thick young stem density nesting structures are still very similar for hens too so they want that thick structural diversity and they'll typically they may have a very um a very well-developed nest or it may just be a little indentation and a leaf pile but still looking for something that buttresses against um, some form of tree structure as well for predator productivity or protection excuse me um, so again, yes, yeah, so we're looking at um, when uh, that incubation period takes place, 24 to 26 days before eggs hatch. Um, they're still very protective, of course, uh, for potential predation during that time. Um, and then when we've got um, fledglings, when, when chicks hatch, and we've got fledglings out looking for additional resources, uh, their life cycle needs change over to um, more herbaceous needs if you will in the landscape so that's when they may be going through some more um more open areas that may include uh, managed areas or natural wildlife openings hunter walking trails are really great they have um, a very high like clover density or or additional herbaceous cover because that's where the insect productivity is going to be and chicks will need that very high protein rich um, insect component for development intuitively so um, you'll see a lot of uh, broods out and a lot of that herbaceous vegetation. And one thing that's interesting about that, too, is when we manage for a lot of these life cycle needs for grouse, we're actually managing for life cycle needs for turkey as well. Um, sometimes pheasant, depending on where you're at. There's not a lot of huge overlap there, but um, there may be some savanna resources adjacent to young forests that they can utilize. And it's also great uh, deer deer habitat as well. So, you know, a lot of those areas that you see the first spring green up um, and, and any wildlife openings or potential um, closed off hunter walking trails that have that herbaceous cover is really beneficial. Um, and then from there, you know, we've got uh, the fall shuffle too. We've got um, broods breaking up typically, although, you know, sometimes in the early season, they <laughs> still still see those broods. A lot of people call them stub tails or short tails when they're harvesting those oh, yeah. young birds early on in the season or running into them in late season. Sometimes they stick together a little bit longer too. Um, but during that fall shuffle, that's when we'll really see those males trying to different, differentiate and try to establish their own territories too, and, and breaking up between male and female ranges. And there may be some some territoriality going on between young males and males who have a established drumming log and established territory too. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of interesting during that fall shuffle period. And then we move on to um, resource use in the fall, uh, where that's typically, you know, again, depending on weather, what we're looking at. Um, Structurally, may still be that young forest uh, component too, um, unless you've got some some early challenges in your weather, uh, like we talked about pre previously too, where it uh, may just be very hot and drought stricken early season part of the year. They're really going to stick to more and more soil areas and any any shade tolerant areas too. Um, and then throughout the fall, age class and structural needs change, food resource availability changes. They're going to focus on that herbaceous vegetation, then switch over to a uh, more soft mass and a mix between the two. And eventually um, what we typically see is birds moving on to buds and catkins later on in the fall and living off that through winter. That fat rich component is really important and a big, a big part of their diet, especially in the winter where they can't expend a lot of energy and they really need that, that very rich fat component to just for survival to keep them alive too. But in some parts of Michigan that we saw this year, and I know other other states around us, and I think, you know, in your area, too, on the East Coast, um, in mid-Atlantic states, we saw a mix of late-season birds that were harvested with a mix of herbaceous vegetation 
and buds and catkins and soft mass species in their crop too. So depending on weather, yeah. I mean, they're very, obviously they're opportunistic. So if there's some great food resource availability out there, they're going to capitalize on it. And that changes our dynamics when we're still pursuing them for the hunting season, of course, too. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I think uh I think I've pretty much found everything but the kitchen sink in a grouse crop over the years. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, they, they really uh uh it's amazing what uh what they will eat, but um obviously we have our predictable things. You know, something that you mentioned um you know with the brood clusters uh and the dispersals um it's amazing how uh you know, I could drive an hour in four different directions. And, you know, in such a small uh, span of distance, how, um, you know, like one big storm that maybe didn't come an hour south, you know, ruined the, you know, the uh, the grouse nest and they were forced to, you know, uh, lay eggs a second time, you know, and, and it, maybe it happened just before they were about to hatch or what, whatever. But, I mean, you know, just, just an hour's difference in, in a direction can uh be the difference between you uh um harvesting juveniles that you know have a have a nice uh uh you know uh 10 to 12 inch uh, uh fan on the bird to ones that look like quail <laughs> you know um right. it just really it blows my mind that um how how localized um the difference in um uh, the timing of brood dispersal, the age of the broods, uh, you know, based on what happens with those uh, spring and uh, early summer uh, storms, you know, just really, I, I've just always, I'm, I'm continually amazed by, uh, by that. Um, and then obviously, you know, I, I'd imagine also do the predation uh, with just some individualness. Um, you'll, uh, you know, you get the mixed bag of, of age groups with, with broods too, but um, I'm sure you've seen lots of that over the years, uh, being out in the field. Um, and you know, you, you, you do some, you know, brood surveys and then you drive for 45 minutes, get out of your car again in a spot that you assume to know to be good. And, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the brood, uh, is a com completely different age, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, so it's always been, uh, fascinating to me and I'm sure you experienced that firsthand. Um, the, uh, something else that it's been a while since I had this conversation with, uh, I call him my UP dad, Jim Hamill. He was, he's a retired, uh, Michigan DNR, uh, wildlife uh -huh. biologist that spent a lot of time with, uh, uh, managing wolf habitat and rough grouse. And he's a setter guy, uh, super, super great guy. Um, anyway, and, and my hundreds of conversations with him over the years, uh, I remember he was telling me about, you know, I'd ask a question about lifespan and, and, uh, maybe you can give more body to this. I mean, obviously there's, it can greatly vary all the time, but he said that statistically, if I recall, it was something like 50% of the brood, uh, uh, you know, might make it to, to the, to the fall. And then 50% of them might make it through the winter. And then, you know, uh, maybe 50% of them actually makes it through the second year. Um, and I, I mean, I would say while, uh, I might not be the best at, at aging grouse, you know, in any way, shape or form, but you know, you sometimes you, you might harvest a real hefty one that seems like he's a giant, you know, and, 
And I always say, man, this has got to be a three-year-old bird, <laughs> you know? Um, right. <laughs> but uh, what, what um, uh, could you shed some statistical fact or light on anything that I just said in regards to projected um, uh, lifespans just based on nature? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you think about it, everything in the grouse woods is trying to kill a grouse, including hunters, including us. So they, um, right out of the gate, don't don't have typically a, a very long lifespan. So what we normally see is that birds may rarely live to even be three years old. Um, and then, you know, aging comes with its own caveats as well. And we very rarely will age birds. Um, you know, we may see a, a large, large bird and just assume that it may be one that we've continued to see on the same drumming log year after year after year. But, you know, it's again, it's still kind of anecdotal. So from... Um, we actually had put this out on the Rough Grouse Society um, webpage, if anyone's interested in some additional grouse facts. We've got some population data out there. So what we, um, you know, what's kind of been derived over the, the you know, several decades that we've been studying birds was a brood from 10 or 12 hatch in late May or early June. Only five of those six um, may have actually survived by mid-August. And then after the fall shuffle occurs, we may only see 45% um, or we may see that 45% have been lost by fall and early winter. And then when you think about winter caveats as well and how harsh winters may be and how hard they may be on birds, depending on roosting snow availability, for example, food availability. Um, we always think about, even right now, I just got just over a foot of snow just outside of Marquette, and um, there's supposed to be an ice crust forming over that snow. So that makes it even harder for birds to be able to thermoregulate, uh, maintain that you know metabolism um, and, and food resource availability, um, opportunities too. So, you know, we may see additional winter mortality. Um, so, you know, we may typically only see 30% potentially surviving, um, from the minute that they fledge a nest through, um, whatever happens between then and, and the fall shuffle and then, uh, winter mortality as well. So we really don't yeah. think about, um, hunting when we think about how, um, adaptive harvest management and regulations are developed and how bag limits and season limits are set within a state. Um, we going into that typically know what our grouse population looks like and how robust it may be and what type of hopefully forest based economy we have in the landscape to support that continuation of that robust population. Uh, but in any species of this is based on the North American model of wildlife management, any game species uh, that is managed, that has those regulations set forth, we know going into it that 99% of the time, hunting is not compensating for additional mortality uh, when you think about overall population for numbers. Uh, to put mm -hmm. that more more bluntly, um, harvesting birds is not going to co definitely contribute to a decline in a bird's population. Um, mm -hmm. So that may just kind of be going a little bit off topic there, but yeah, like I said, um, very short lifespan with rough grouse, uh, typically may not even make it to three years. And if we're losing, you know, say you have a, a brood of 10, we may only see that 45% of those live um, into their first breeding season too. So the cards yeah. are stacked against grouse <laughs> from sure, the get-go sure. and, and whatever we can do to make sure that they've, you know, it's all about habitat from there. So making sure yeah. that we have everything on the landscape to provide those resources needed for those individuals to survive through that winter, you know, through the fall and have, you know, additional food resource availability and survive into the next breeding season. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there, uh, you know, obviously in terms of um, 
sex, you know, we can uh, we can identify the males, right, with the with the two or more dots on on the rump feathers there. Um, and I think in uh, the first uh, maybe the first year is there is there anything that would um, on a on a physical exam of a bird um, allow you to 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 age it beyond uh, it being a year old? I know I think the first year. I think Jim told me there's like a bursa sack or something um, that can be actually he showed me it uh, on a, on a juvenile, but over a year old I don't recall. Is there is there any way to actually determine you know uh, like you know you bring your dog to the vet and they say well yeah by judging by his teeth I would say he's two or three years old um, is you know I I always you know have just gone by the size of the bird and you know again not knowing but maybe assuming it's a three year old or kind of look at the size of the snowshoes on that big old drummer, you know? Um, but uh, right. uh, is there anything scientifically that we're able to actually chart the age of a grouse like we do rings on a trunk of a tree kind of thing? Uh, you know, that can be really difficult too. So we, um, grouse and woodcock are very similar where age determination may not always be an exact science. So mm -hmm. with grouse and woodcock, we can take, exam uh, take um, a look at, whether, excuse me, um, we can take a look at uh, wear on each of the feathers and take a look at primary wear as well. And that will help to kind of guide us um, into what we're looking at with regards to adult and juvenile. So when we take a look at aging um, and sexing any birds um, from an ornithological perspective, we really just call or refer to them as adult or juvenile. Um, so it can be, you know, a hatch year, which would be a juvenile or an after hatch year, which would be an adult. So we really don't look into um, taking a look at hopefully, you know, or at least anecdotally trying to determine how many years that that bird may mm -hmm. survive. So from a scientific gotcha. basis, it's it's adult or juvenile. And we really break it down for that. And the same goes for turkeys, too. And a lot of people say the same thing. Um, and the buccal sac is, is one thing to look at. But when mm -hmm. you look at... Um, different tarsal characteristics on a turkey. A lot of people may say, this one's got limb hangers. You know, we've got two inches on on this bird and this must be a, an old mature bird. Again, that's resource availability too. So, you know, that that may, there's different characteristics that may be developed over time, um, depending sure. on what that individual bird is going through in its current environment that mm -hmm. may allow it to develop adaptations or those pectinations or the snowshoes, you know, on its, on its feet mm -hmm. a little earlier. Um, that, you know, that, that's all kind of the, a factor of the environment. So we really stick to, um, adult or juvenile in the, in the bird sure. world, the bird nerd world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, like all those bucks that just live in those giant oak groves, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, so, t uh, I'd love to talk about, uh, two more tops with you. Um, one is, um, the grouse home range, the drummer's range, you know, this is something that I know, <clears throat> I know a lot of it has to do, well, everything has to do with, um, uh, uh, the, the, the quality and type of habitat, uh, that we look over, a, a geographic area. Um, but <clears throat> you know, it's funny here in New York where we're hunting a lot of, uh, abandoned farmland, um, or more, um, uh, mature forests that have a lot of blowdown, um, the mm -hmm. when you know we could hunt uh uh i could be hunting a, a a farm my family's farm even and you know dog goes on point i step in you know into uh you know a hawthorn grove or a, a cluster of uh apple trees you know and 
the big old drummer that lives there for for you know ever with uh always finding the right back door to get out of this equation um you know he'll cat and we're on a we're on a mountainside <laughs> a hillside you know these birds will these birds will cast i kid you not a, a a third of a mile just down you know just it's all downhill gliding uh, you know basically to cross to the other mountain across the way um obviously they have the they have the uh, that that type of habitat promotes that um mm-hmm. but i could go back a week later and that same bird is right back up under that same apple tree, you know. Exactly. <laughs> um, so it's uh, you know, and then by the same token, we've also I have a a, a grouse brother here in New York that uh, uh, shot a banded grouse uh, several years ago, and uh, they contacted the DEC, and um, you know that that grouse was banded as a as a chick just two hundred yards from from where it was born. Um, and, uh, and that was, and that bird, I believe that bird was actually three years old. Um, but, uh, in any event, you know, uh, we know that if they have phenomenal habitat and everything that they need, they, they travel as little as they need to, other than maybe some pressures that we or, you know, predators put on them. But, um, is there a, um, uh, I don't know. I almost feel like saying the question should be, um, (laughs) Is there a range too big that these little guys won't travel depending upon um uh what their needs are you know and you look at how we you know you can go into a cover um that is uh uh so productive um whether it's seasonally or heck even time of day i've I've done experiments where man this cover looks great and I go in there and um there's nothing and then I'm like, you know what I'm gonna go back there and two hours or three hours and, and then it's a completely different hunting experience. Uh, you know, so is there, um, what could you share? I mean, I know there's, and and I've read a lot of studies on, on, um, their range, but what could you share with your experience and knowledge about, uh, grouse and the, the drummer's range? Uh, this, this was trigger. I had this written down, um, before we started talking today, (laughs) but you, um, you touched upon just, you know, to drum different times a year. And obviously, you know, you hear the juveniles like drumming, trying to claim territories in the fall and not always music to our ears. Um, uh, and I always kind of think, all right, well, here's all this prime habitat. And, well, that one sounds like he's about a, you know, maybe two tenths of a mile that way. And this one's maybe a couple hundred yards over there. And, um, but, uh, anyway, um, what's, uh, what do you have to say about the whole range deal? <laughs> Yeah, range is interesting. I mean, you, again, you come back to the fact that these birds are adept forest dependent, forest obligate species too. So, um, you know, over time, we know so much about them, but then at the same time, we don't. So, we've got kind of a general range that we consider. Um, for male, we look at males um, maintaining a territory of 10 to 50 acres. And they will defend that territory, you know, and, and until they can't any longer. And when a more mature male, you know, after that first breeding season, more mature male, if still surviving, of course, um, claims that certain territory of that 10 to 50 acres, they'll typically maintain it for life. So, mm-hmm. like I said, I, I mentioned a friend um, downstate. There was a kind of an oak and jack pine, scrub oak and pin oak and jack pine um, area that, that we were hunting in. And he would tell me a story about this. Uh, this male that's always on his drumming log that's kind of near a power line that's been there for years and he's he always skirts by and still survives. We've seen him through several dogs and 
I mean, if that male has survived that long, you know, obviously they're, they're more adept and they adapt to different, uh, different experiences and challenges throughout their life, but they'll, they will defend that territory typically through life. Females yeah. though have a little bit more of a, a wider, um, area that they'll cover. So they may actually have, um, you know, habits or home range and not necessarily territory size, but home range that maybe go over a hundred acres. Um, mm -hmm. But they typically, again, try to stay in a particular home range. Um, males and female home ranges will still overlap, too. So, you know, there there may be a male that may have an opportunity to serve as several females and reproduce with several females that kind of overlap within his range, too. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's it's interesting. It's it's always um, always challenging to see, but males are typically going to select the best habitat for their territory. So yeah. if, if you've come across, you know, a male drummer that you think has been there, you've got on video, you know, on your trail camera for a few years on the same drumming log, there's something there and there's something that they're utilizing resource-wide that's keeping them there too. And then females coming to them, they're obviously being reproductively successful and creating that next generation year after year after year. So that's really what it takes. So it comes down to resource availability, but typically what we see is 10 to 50 acres for a male with some overlap, especially with juveniles trying to establish their own territories. And up to 100, if not more, you know, I, I dare to say 150 to 200 sometimes for females. But again, all depending on resource availability, juxtaposed next to each other. If they need to travel yeah. longer distances for nesting and brood rearing habitat as opposed to, you know, winter habitat and winter cover, there, there may be some, you know, branching out that goes out past those, those general norms that we consider. Yeah. I, and I think, um, <clears throat> uh, I feel just based on the, I mean, our, our New York habitat, generally speaking, is nowhere as near what, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota's is. Um, but when I look at these farms, you know, you'll, and we have these pocket covers here, you know, even on my, my, uh, my family's farm, which is several hundred acres. Um, pretty much I, I know, I know the, I know the 10 acre clusters all over that whole property, you know, if there are mm -hmm. birds there, you know, where they're going to be. But as, uh, as the, as winter comes on, you know, um, they move and when, you know, they, sometimes they, they, they have to move a considerable distance that definitely goes to some of these limits that you, that you're describing here, uh, to get to those hemlocks, you know, um, uh, for, for, for cover as all that soft mass, uh, uh, and their, their other ground covers, uh, uh, diminish but it's uh that's always just been something that's fascinated me um uh as to how they uh play and i i guess uh one of my favorite uh native american sayings that i i would always uh say to people is um you know an animal is is an instrument played by the landscape you know and uh right. I, I feel these these grouse really <laughs> really really define that for for um when it comes to their their range uh specifically um absolutely so yeah yeah um so the one other thing i wanted to talk about today was um uh, something that has been in the headlines uh, in the rough grouse community for uh a few years now um not not as much uh crazy talk lately <laughs> but nonetheless uh, <laughs> uh active and that's our uh the topic of uh west nile um what is uh, uh, um, some of the scientific data, uh, if any, that we have right now um, kind of showing? And then I just wanted to talk about uh, both yours and mine experiences on the ground 
um, uh, for the last three seasons, which has kind of been when all this really flared up, uh, so to speak, uh, um, you know, in the Lake States region. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. This has definitely been a hot button topic and one that I have been, as well as my colleagues as well, um, discussing with our upland communities, um, very intensively. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on right now and a lot that we don't know as well right now. So I guess I'll just Mm -hmm. kind of start from the beginning, if that's okay, on what kind of set the precedents that we're in right now and current surveillance for West Nile. Mm -hmm. Um, we, Specifically, started to see um, hunter submitted. I'll speak to Michigan. Um, hunter submitted samples of birds, um, whether hunter harvested birds at the time, or um, birds that potentially were sickly um, or had succumbed to some form of fatality uh, that potentially their dogs had recovered as well. That were submitted to our wildlife disease laboratory through Michigan State University and Michigan DNR. Um, we had a few positives come up and that was, uh, in 2018 as well. So our hunting community, we also started to see, you know, I guess I'll back up. We have been receiving comments, um, and again, anecdotal information on the landscape in Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin about changes in what people are seeing on the landscape in terms of hunter harvest, in terms of bird numbers, hunter success. Uh, bird contacts in general. And we didn't have enough information at that point in time to really understand what was going on. So going even further back, typically, um, from what we knew about rough grouse only in the lake states, which includes those three, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, we saw that birds typically um, functioned on a decadal scale. And that being said, we saw um, a cycle going on, which a lot of people just call it the 10-year cycle, where we'd see a rise and fall in bird productivity and bird population levels. We don't, in my opinion, necessarily see that as much now, specifically in Michigan, um, if, if, at, if any more at all, um, just due to numerous different factors. There's a lot of ingredients in a very complex soup that drive grouse population numbers, so to speak. We don't have a drumming survey or um, additional breeding population density uh, survey going on in Michigan right now that actually provides any robust data to stand on um, from that. So we typically really just rely on what we're hearing from uh, our, our fellow bird hunters in the upland community and what we see on the landscape as well. So yeah. uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin still, you know, even if they were on a high, Michigan may be on a low, those cycles, those 10-year cycles never lined up in the first place. And we don't yeah. fully know whatever drove those cycles. Obviously, we know habitat is our key element, as as you and I have, have discussed numerous times throughout the podcast mm-hmm. so far. Um, so that being said, um, in the 2018 season, there were uh, there was an interagency effort developed by Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, and this is because our grouse hunters spoke up. There was not an initial um, intent to develop a survey protocol for West Vile West Vile West Nile virus, excuse me, on the landscape. Um, and in, in regards with what we were seeing in rough grouse, there was still obviously through our respective wildlife disease laboratories, different species tested as they are every year. West Nile has been on the landscape since moving westward from kind of mid Atlantic, um, eastern states and the western Great Lakes states and eastern Great Lakes states since approximately 2010, you know, and we saw some hits to our corvid population, which would be our crows and our ravens. We didn't really see anything else really taking a larger hit. 
Um, so at the time, you know, we didn't, we still didn't have a survey protocol developed or in place. Um, so in the 2018 season, we reached out to all of our hunters, and um, I was working with our Michigan DNR at the time to try to get a hold of folks throughout the state that would be interested in submitting samples from hunter harvested birds. So that's harvest specific um, in Michigan, and then we had similar protos, similar uh, protocol in Wisconsin and Minnesota too. Yeah. Um, so in 2018. We just recently received um, some of the data back, but we still don't have the full analysis available. So we're hoping to receive that now, especially after going through our second um, survey sample season from 2019. But in 2018, we had 213 um, samples in four study areas in the UP and Lower Peninsula. And at that time, we found that 13%, 28 of those, tested positive for exposure to West Nile virus. Um, and then antibodies of the virus were confirmed in nine or 4% of those birds. So the antibodies, um, were, were at least found and likely in another 19 birds or another 9%. So we, um, saw four birds, I guess it was one adult and three juveniles from all from the Northern lower, not in the UP that tested positive for the prevalence of viral material in their hearts. So they're looking at lesions on their heart. Uh, when those samples are submitted, the birds are breasted out. They need the heart um, and, and additional organs to test for lesions on the heart and kidneys to determine if that was, in fact, the reason that those birds succumbed to the disease. Mm -hmm. So anyway, just not to go further down that rabbit hole, I'm sure this is you know information that a lot of people have, have potentially heard before. Um, we're seeing a prevalence. We know it's here. We know that rough grouse are testing positive and whether or not they're succumbing to the disease um, and, and those low numbers that we saw, four out of 213, that we saw actually um, having a mortality rate due to West Nile virus has been pretty low so far. And then there's respective data out there for Wisconsin and Minnesota. Um, we saw pretty similar um, data in Wisconsin, a little bit higher rate um, in Minnesota, but not by much. So we right now it's too early to tell we're going through three years of the study so anyone out there that may be interested in um, receiving samples this year will also be looking to um, gather data from hunter harvested birds in 2020 and then after that they're going to at least get the three years of data the initial three years of data in this pilot study together to try to see if there's any patterns that we've seen throughout those three years um, but one thing at the end of the day that we're saying specifically that we are seeing in michigan is that robust habitat supports robust population so yep. albeit that the virus is here, um, you know, we, we've recognized that it's here and it, it, you know, it definitely is on the landscape in a number of different species. It is right now not causal to any declines that we're seeing in the rough grouse population. At the end of the day, as again, kind of a repeating message we've been saying, um, habitat and on the landscape is, is key to supporting those populations. So and that's what we can do. That's what we're looking yeah. at. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, as hunters, the best thing that we can do is stay on top of it, stay informed and yeah. talk within your local community and your hunting groups and participate in those studies. A lot of people may not want to take the time, but the sample um, is, is really quick and, and easy to do and easily, easily submitted to your local DNR office as well. So if we can do our part to understand more about what's going on on the landscape, we're all for the better. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um you know, uh, in, <clears throat> I mean, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of grouse in my life so far. Um, and, and 2017 was the first time in my whole life 
and all the birds that I've harvested and all the time I spent in the woods that I've ever in my life seen a sick bird. And uh, that year I saw eight. Um, uh, our local uh, uh, Michigan DNR biologist uh, in my area out there, um, I had I had brought her uh, the first three sick birds I found. Now, this was 2017, so I guess they didn't, I don't know, they came up I, maybe positive for exposure. I'm not sure what they could mm-hmm. tell in 2017. Two out of the three did anyway. And, you know, classic, totally emaciated, zero breast muscle. You know, couldn't yep. fly the dog. I could go over and pick it up off the ground, you know. Um, but eight of them I found. Um, and uh, 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 Monica Joseph, the uh, biologist that I had dealt with, she um, uh, she had said that it was very, um, at that time, and it seemed like the data that, that the study had seemed to gather thus far is that it was going in clusters um, and not just like, you know, a blanketed, um, right. uh, it was. you know, parents. Yeah. Unfortunately, I <laughs> seemed to be in an area that year that was uh, uh, in one of the clusters of it. But um, yeah, I saw eight birds that year. So uh, the numbers were still good, um, but they were, um, you know, they, they were they were sick. Um, the thing that was interesting, um, and again, obviously, this is just anecdotal, um, but uh, that year, uh you know, all the locals were saying how it was like one of the worst mosquito years ever, you know, and at the end of mm-hmm. October, we we're still smacking mosquitoes off of us, terribly so. Um, but uh, then the following year, you know, obviously everybody or I was especially worried about what the numbers would be um, out there. And uh, the numbers were still as generally good as they as they are. Um, but and I and I didn't I personally did not harvest or see any sick birds. So that was a, a huge relief uh, uh, to me. Um, and then, um, uh, and, and, you know, they were saying how, uh, uh, last year and the year before that, I guess a, a lot of, uh, uh, people in upper Michigan, you know, those concerts saying like, that was one of the actually least mosquito years that they had. <laughs> so I don't know if there was a correlation or not. And then we certainly had in 2018, uh, we had a, a, a wet, rainy, snowy October, you know, I mean, there were, mm-hmm. there were no bugs around, you know, then. Um, and then this year, uh, for me personally, while I've always had, uh, uh, great seasons in, in, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, um, and I know at least for upper Michigan, so I'm told, uh, again, I'm kind of rounding out my first full cycle, uh, so to speak, I guess, uh, um, you know, that years on the nines are, you know, can tend to be, um, your, your peak in the cycle. Uh, but this year was my my best year I've ever had in terms of seeing birds. And, and there was uh, a lot of um, maybe not that exact report from other grouse hunters that I've had contact with, but way, way better than the prior two years. Um, so right. at least as far as boots on the ground, I, I, I'm incredibly encouraged about, you know, our good habitat uh, hopefully uh, looks like it, it should help help the birds, uh, you know, get through it. And I don't remember when exactly West Nile was in New York. Gosh, I want to say around the year, like 2000 and maybe even 99. Um, I vaguely remember, uh, you know, blue jays becoming non-existent and dead crows literally being seen all over on the sides of the roads. And, you know, neighbors talking about how the heron was dead outside on their, you know, near their pond. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I, while I, I I was hunting grouse then, um, I don't really 
we don't hear as much about that uh, in New York. And maybe our buddy Andy Week actually at some point could shed some light on on the the history of West Nile. But uh, in New York, or at least Eastern New York, you know, the peak is kind of on years that end in six. And I mean, I got to say that uh, 2006 and 2016 were, uh, as far as New York numbers go, phenomenal. Um, and uh, so. Even even when in a lesser habitat situation, it seems like the, you know the strong survive and uh, you know um, survival of the fittest, so to speak. And uh, I mean, I'm encouraged uh, by what you said, and certainly by what my experience has been, and some other hunters that I uh, know spend a ton of time in the woods. Yeah, no, that's and that's great to hear. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you also had good experiences here as well. And I did misspeak. We've seen West Nile in the states since about 2000 as well. I think I said 2010 okay. previously. Too many numbers okay. to keep straight today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's um, right. <laughs> but but yeah, no. Moving forward, at the end of the day, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, when you think about just forest health in general, healthy forests. Um, you know, when when we manage for forest health, we're managing for that health to be able to weather the storm so to speak, to be able to yeah. weather impacts such as potential climate change factors, such as disease prevalence. And we're doing the same for those forest obligate species too, such as rough grouse. So, you know, I mean, if we've got healthy habitat on the landscape, that's really key to the overall health of the birds and their ability to survive disease and other limiting factors while everything in the world is trying to fight against a grouse too. So yeah, yeah. It, it'll really be interesting to see um, how things go from here, but it's it's fascinating to me that we're seeing such differences, at least, you know, we're seeing some similarities in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, depending on where you're referring to, uh, Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, sure. But, you know, where, where those birds were tested and where we have, you know, high bird densities there, we're, we're seeing some similar results, but um, still reports of good bird numbers. And last year, I was very, very pleased with the bird numbers I saw. But I had a yeah. lot of other people in the Upland community tell, tell me that they, you know, had some challenges. So there's there's yeah. still something going on on a landscape. Where, mm -hmm. you know, areas that should really have higher densities, where we should maybe have, you know, better, better harvest, mm -hmm. better hunting experiences, um, isn't happening right now. I'm not quite sure what that is. Maybe we're still coming mm -hmm. up from that, you know, that, yeah. that bottom. And maybe, yeah. like I said, maybe we're just really not on that 10 year cycle anymore. There's mm -hmm. a lot of different changes environmentally and from, um, management perspectives and a lot I, of other I'm saying this. That are yeah, right. I'm saying this covering my mouth. Get off the trails. <laughs> Get off the trails. <laughs> you <know>? Exactly. <laughs> Boot leather kills birds. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, some people, yeah, we got to say it at the end of the day. We have to heckle our counterparts that may be hitting those yeah. hunter walking trails every time and, and encouraging yep. them to get smacked in the face by some aspen here and there. But <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, well, Heather, I so appreciate you joining us today on the podcast so we could nerd out on grouse. Uh, no more favorite topic for me, and I know you as well. Um, so again, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. This has been wonderful. Yeah, no, it's been great. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to Setter Talk today. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Today, our guest was Heather Shaw. Until next time, give your setter a scratch in the head for me and make it a great day.